This is Interviews, a podcast from the National Academy of Sciences that provides first-person accounts of the lives and work of Academy members. In this series of one-on-one conversations, scientists talk about what inspired them to pursue the careers they chose and describe some of the most fascinating aspects of their research. For over three decades, experimental psychologist J. Anthony Mopshan has mapped the mysterious borderland where vision and action intersect. But he almost never made it there. Coming of age in the tumultuous late 1960s made him question whether he should give up on his interests, music and science, and consider doing something more socially relevant. He discovered the burgeoning vision research underway at his university and chose to stay in science. Since then, he has explored how humans take basic input about light and color and use it to understand the world around them. His work has helped reveal how the brain's visual processing develops and works, how that processing translates into perception and action, and what happens when the process goes wrong. Mavshan is a professor of neuroscience and psychology at New York University. He was elected to the National Academy of Sciences in 2008. My name is Tony Mavshin. Uh, I'm a neuroscientist. I studied the visual system, and I was elected in 2008 to the National Academy. Where did you grow up? I grew up in New York, in Manhattan, um, Midtown. Uh, my father worked for the United Nations, so I grew up near there. And I actually um, often find myself, in a, when I'm wearing my hat as a department chair and I'm trying to recruit people to come and live and work in New York and raise families there, uh, I make the point that being a child in Manhattan is absolutely phenomenal once you pass the age of 9 or 10 um, because what you the situation you reach in many parts of the country is that you find that teenagers of various kinds seem to spend a lot of their time looking for things to do, looking for things to entertain themselves with. And one of the things about growing up in New York is you're never short of things to do. There's always things to do and you're independently mobile because public transport and the subways and so on mean that kids can get around the city uh, and they do and you're not um, in perpetual need of a chauffeur, uh, you're not in perpetual need of a shopping mall to hang out and of course the city's resources are you know endless so I compare notes with my friends who grew up in the suburbs and they talk about you know hanging out and looking for things to do and finding times when they didn't have anything to do and I'm thinking like I never didn't have anything to do. <laughs> Having young children in the city is a challenge uh, but I don't remember that part so so then what were some of the things that you liked to do? The thing, you know, as, as, a, as a child, I think the things I liked to do were the things that most kids like to do. Uh, I, uh, uh, I was interested in my friends. I had, you know, modest interests in, you know, in music, which has become a, a, a great interest of mine, but much later really in life, um, not as a performer, but as a listener. Uh, I was, you know, not a sportsman, but I did the usual uh, sports things, and uh, I was interested in science, uh, not in any particularly focused way, but just in an abstract way. It was a subject I enjoyed in school. You sort of naturally gravitate in school to things you do fairly well, and I found science fairly easy, and so, you know, I was always interested in the way things worked. Uh, I went to a fairly small private school, which meant that uh, we didn't have huge labs or big science facilities. It also meant that I got a lot of individual uh, time with the people who were teaching me science subjects. So what you get from that is sort of an interest in science without a great deal of highly sophisticated knowledge. Um, uh, And then um, I went to college in the late 60s, 
the late 60s was a time of social and cultural turmoil, uh, and I had decided at the time I left that I was not interested in being a scientist anymore, and I wanted to go off and uh, become something uh, something different. I'm not even sure what. Um, uh, maybe social science or maybe something uh, more radical and more political. Uh, I was talked out of that by my advisors when I was an undergraduate uh, and ended up settling back into science and finishing an undergraduate degree in science. It was a good time to be uh, politically engaged. It was a good time to be interested in issues other than science. And science, especially when you're young, science can seem dry. It can seem not especially relevant and central to issues of the day. So this was Vietnam. This was this was 68, 69, 70. Um, Kent State. There were a lot of things going on. So science at times didn't seem like a central issue. Um, of course it is. It's always important, but it has a slower time course. And so I would say that careers are best formed not in a straight line. Uh, I know some people who are very successful and who've always been focused on particular goals and do well, but usually the more interesting people and the people who practice their particular specialties best are ones who ventured outside them and who've wandered around and tried different things and had different ideas uh, before finally settling down. I mean, one way to visualize that is to say, if you're making a bunch of choices, if you haven't had a chance to sample all the other choices, then how can you be sure that the choice you've made is the right one? The field I'm in didn't really exist in quite the same form when I started. So I trained in psychology in the UK, but psychology in the UK is a somewhat different discipline from the one it is here. Psychology here, as you know, spreads from the social science side of psychology, people who work on things like interpersonal relationships or personality disorders, clinical psychology, all the way through to what we sometimes call the scientific or the natural science side of psychology. And um, the department I trained in in the UK was entirely concentrated on the natural science side of psychology, what that was then called experimental psychology. And it was very much connected also with the Department of Physiology, where people studied the brain mechanisms related. So what had you studied as an undergraduate? Well, so I was an undergraduate in, in Cambridge, and when you come to university in England as an undergraduate, you come admitted for a specific field of study. I was admitted to study natural sciences. Um, I was interested in biology and chemistry. Uh, that is before I had this brief radical phase and was interested in other things. So I had decided I would study biochemistry. Uh, so I tried studying biochemistry, but I rapidly discovered that biochemistry wasn't particularly to my taste, mostly because the laboratory work um, in biochemistry um, is not particularly interesting. Uh, I'm, I'm quite shallow, so I like to do things that are fun, and uh, laboratory biochemistry isn't particular fun. Uh, so I became uh, interested in work that's sort of at the border between physiology and psychology, uh, what, as I said, has now become um, a chunk of neuroscience. Uh, in about my second year as an undergraduate, uh, I did my final year, which is a specialty year in Cambridge, all in psychology. Uh, but the work I did was, uh, at least in large part, also physiology, and then I just stayed on in the same department to do graduate work. Not everyone goes overseas for their undergraduate degree. What prompted you to go to Cambridge? Um, I had family connections to England because my mother was English. Uh, I was interested in spending time there, and uh, a family friend who passed through New York at a critical time when I was in high school sort of told me how to do it, who to contact, and so on. So I made contact with the college I eventually attended and was able to sort of get admitted there earlier than I would have had to apply to colleges in the U.S. 
So it just seemed like an interesting opportunity. That's just because the cycle of admissions is different there. Uh, and so it seemed like an interesting option, and I thought, why not? So I did it. And once you, you found this natural sciences side of psychology, um, you felt at home there. That was what interested you. What do you think appealed to you most about it? I think that people get interested in fields because interesting people practice those fields. So the people who attract you to, people who attracted me to work in, in, in vision, which is the sort of specific discipline that I studied, uh, were interesting people in themselves. And so I became interested in what they were interested in. And these were people who were my teachers or my, um, my sort of individual tutors. Uh, as you may know, the educational system in England emphasizes individual tutorial instruction. So in addition to lectures, you have uh, people who are your tutors, who are your sort of specific academic leaders in particular subjects, and you meet with them weekly. Uh, so a couple of my tutors, um, uh, particularly a man called Colin Blakemore, who eventually became my PhD advisor, uh, were very interesting people, and I became interested in the things they did because they were interesting people. Um, and what was known about vision and, and the brain's mechanics at the time? David Hubel and Torsten Wiesel, who are sort of the fathers of the field I work in, uh, who won the Nobel Prize in, I'm going to say 1981, but it could have been 1980, um, for the, their work, sort of opened up a huge area of research by making microelectrode recordings, that is, recordings from electrodes that are small enough to record the activity of single brain cells. Uh, in the brains of animals, studying the parts of their brains that encode visual information and relay information about vision to the parts of the brain that control behavior. Um, so Hubel and Wiesel had made these discoveries about visual representations in the brain. Uh, and at the same time, there was a group of people, many of whom were working in Cambridge at the time or in the years before I worked there, who had developed very sophisticated precise methods for measuring human performance in visual tasks and had used those measurements to deduce a lot of interesting aspects of the function of the underlying visual process in the brain. Um, visual psychophysics, as it's called, uh, is a discipline in which people make measurements of visual performance in what may seem to be very boring circumstances. And actually, to be honest, for the subjects involved, they probably are boring circumstances. But from the data that you record in those circumstances, you can make quite sophisticated inferences about the mechanisms in the brain that must be responsible for the kind of things that you see. Um, going into the brain to look for the physiological representations of those processes is something that I've concentrated on throughout my career. Uh, that is to say, what I'll do is I will find a uh, perceptual uh, skill that seems to be of interest or a perceptual uh, feature of how vision works in people that seems to be of interest and try and work out how that could arise from brain mechanisms and where those brain mechanisms might be and how they might work and then we try and devise experiments that let us go and find them. So uh, give an example of one such task and what it might tell you about how people see. Well for example one of the things I've worked on extensively is how people perceive and how the brain processes information about moving objects. So um, we're mobile organisms, and we live in a world where things move. So it's not a surprise that there's lots of motion in all of the visual input that we receive. So even if we sit in a room and we look around, uh, even if the room is stable, our eyes are not. So images are always moving on the retina. And presumably as a result of this, the mammalian visual pathway in many different creatures has evolved a specialized system for processing information about motion. Now, 
Um, that manifests itself in the brain in a number of different areas that have concentrations of nerve cells that are interested in moving objects. They respond much better to moving objects. And they also respond in a way that allows them to tell the motion direction and maybe other aspects like the speed of moving objects. So um, there are a number of reasons why it's important to know particular things about moving objects. And many of those have to do with how we behave. So when we interact with the world, when we um, do things like catching a ball in flight or decide whether or not to cross the street uh, or decide how to reach for a moving object and, and grasp it, or even to choose to move our eyes, for example, to capture the image of a moving object. So let's say we want to identify the driver of a car crossing in front of us. All of these things require that we be able to estimate with good accuracy the movement of things in the world and then program action to take, it, take account of, those, uh, of, that, of that information. Um, and so the brain systems that are involved in encoding motion information are actually also particularly connected to the brain systems that are involved in controlling action. Uh, and so um, I'm also interested in how signals related to motion perception are converted into signals that the brain gener generates for controlling movements. Uh, the things I'm interested in sort of fall loosely into, into three categories. Um, one category has to do with how these mechanisms develop in early life. One of the things we know about vision and visual processing is that infant animals, neonatal animals, have very limited visual performance. Uh, and vision is something that has to be learned, and it has to be learned in part in a way that's guided by experience. So animals that are uh, deprived of visual experience have very deficient vision. And we know that, for example, children who have limitations on their visual experience, let's say they have uh, an eye that squints and points in the wrong direction, or they have a, uh, an opacity of the lens, a cataract, have very profound visual deficits that are not simply a result of the fact that they don't get, um, that they can, you know, that they have the cataract. That the brain behind the damaged eye, if you will, is altered by the abnormal early visual experience. So the brain system, brain mechanisms of vision are an interesting place to study mechanisms of plasticity in the brain, what we call plasticity in the brain, meaning its ability to adapt to different kinds of inputs and circumstances. There's also a significant clinical interest. Um, many Many children, many adult individuals, prevalence is typically given as 1 or 2% of the population, have a condition called amblyopia, which you know is lazy eye. Um, well, these are conditions in which one eye has worked at an early developmental disadvantage and has become weakened. And by become weakened, what we mean is that its connections to the central nervous system have become modified and, and, and become less effective. And so I've been interested in a lot of processes that are associated with understanding how that happens developmental plasticity of vision. So that's one thing. Um, and that also has the virtue of keeping me connected to some of the real clinical problems in neuroscience. Most, most problems in neuroscience that are associated with disorders of higher brain function are things that we are a long way from being able to fix because we really can't intervene in any important way in, uh, at a biological level with the function of the adult brain. It's fully wired up. Uh, we don't usually go, go there and sort of open it up and fix pieces of it. I can't put in a brain graft the way I can put in a bone graft. And there are all sorts of problems with, um, with dealing with that. 
developmental disorders are an area in which it seems like we might be able to uh, make some headway and have some uh, have some uh, uh, impact. And developmental disorders of vision are particularly easy to study for exactly the same reason that the visual system is particularly easy to study. We can control the input, we can have reasonable measures of the output, uh, and, uh, and we've made, I think, good headway in, in trying to understand a lot of these things. The other areas I work on concern vision in normal adult individuals, uh, and I divide them, divide my work entirely arbitrarily into two pieces, which I'll call bottom-up and top-down. Uh, and bottom-up is what I talk about when I talk about the process of encoding information in the retinal image. So if you're looking at a scene in the world, uh, you might imagine that your eye looks at it as a camera does by measuring light and color at every point in the image, and it does, at some level that's true. But the information that's important in the image is not captured by all of those representations of light and color. The information that's important in the image is captured by extracting from that information about surfaces, objects, events, things in the world. The world is full of what a colleague of mine calls things and stuff, and you have a visual system that's very well adapted to picking out information about things and telling you about the properties of stuff that's out there in the visual world. That's a computational problem. That's a set of problems associated with asking what mechanisms convert those pixel values from the eye, you know, point by point, brightness by brightness, color by color, into inferences, and that's what they really are, about the structure of the world. Um, as I look across the table at you, I can see you and the fact that you stand out from your background, not because the pixels on my retina know the difference between you and the background, but because I compute something about the structure of the whole world that includes you. Uh, and so that's the bottom-up part, though, because I think of that as a way of starting with these basic data, these pixel data that you get from the retina, and working on them stage by stage, as it turns out the visual system does, to extract informative and interesting elements from them. Um, Top-down uh, has to do with looking at the way the visual system works from the other end, from the far end, and that's what I was talking about earlier when I was talking about perceptual experience and the control of behavior. So if as an organism I find that I look at a scene and I move my eyes around it in a particular way or I interact with it in a particular way, let's say I catch a ball, I avoid an obstacle, uh, those are behavioral outcomes of a process which I can get an insight into by looking back from the process itself. So if I know how, to, how I catch a ball, I can compute in some fairly precise way what I need to know about the world in order to move my body to put my hand in the right place to catch the ball. And that's a problem which uh, would be very hard to solve from first principles going pixel by pixel. It's much easier to solve it by going from the sort of physical realities of the world and the body and all of the image data that are out there and then trying to work out what systems in the brain convert the visual input I have into the movement control that I need to execute the task. So what are some of the sort of interesting or surprising answers that you found? What are some things you've discovered looking at these questions? I always hate the discovery question because um, science, science is often perceived to be a process in which sort of magically wonderful discoveries emerge as if from nothing, right? They pop out and you suddenly say, today I have discovered this important truth about nature and I'm going to tell you about it. Uh, I actually don't believe science works that way. Science is 
an evolutionary process that consists for the most part of making mistakes and learning from the mistakes you've made how things don't work rather than learning from the insights you have how they do work. So whenever people ask me about discoveries, I always get kind of, you know, I get that kind of chill you get when somebody's asking you a question you can't really answer. However, I can give you the, the, the a simple account of some of the things that we've discovered that I think are, uh, that are going to be important. Uh, let me see. Uh, so in the, uh, in the area of visual processing in the brain and its relationship to perception, we've discovered that the, this pathway of visual motion sensing cells and areas that I mentioned before uh, has a particular and specific relationship to mechanisms in the brain that are responsible for the control of action and are probably responsible also for our conscious perception. So the discovery if you want to put it in terms of a single discovery, is that we've, we have discovered the mechanisms that are responsible for visual motion processing in the brain, and we've discovered the principles by which they work, and by which they provide information for conscious experience of visual motion. Um, a second discovery that we've made has to do with the developmental process uh, related to this, um, uh, to this disease, amblyopia. Amblyopia uh, is a puzzle. It's a disease which is often associated with a visual abnormality in one eye, and so it was often thought in the past that the problem actually lay in the eye. Uh, Hubel and Wiesel did important studies in the 60s and 70s showing that the problem with amblyopia actually lay in the brain, not in the eye. And what we've done is to go on from the work they did to show that the problems that you get with vision in an amblyopic eye don't simply result from changes in one part of the brain, but result instead from a cascade of changes that take place. Uh, in amblyopia, it turns out that the disorders that the, the disorders of visual function that result from amblyopia are not just because of changes in one place, as one might have suspected to begin with, but because there is in fact a cascade of changes, multiple visual areas in a sort of processing chain, each are dis disrupted in part by amblyopia. Uh, and that gives us a framing not only for the question of why amblyopia is such a complicated disorder, because it is a disorder which is hard to characterize and curiously disruptive, uh, and, but also how we might approach devising therapies for it. How have you balanced your work and your life, your personal life? Balancing your professional life and your work is a real challenge for every scientist, um, because I think it's actually a challenge for anyone who is really passionately engaged with what they do. Uh, I am uh, an only child, and as an only child, I've always been used to having my way, and that means I've always been used to following my instincts, going after the things that I thought were important. That is not always optimal for the people with whom you share your life. Um, so you make personal choices when you're a scientist, which can actually be harmful to personal relationships and can be difficult for the people like your children and your spouse and others. Um, finding those balances is always a challenge. What advice would you give to a young person interested in a career in science? I think you should do what you become passionate about. Um, people um, uh, people who are interested in a career in science uh, have the potential for doing something that's enormously rewarding and enormously satisfying. One of the things about a scientific career that's very difficult to achieve in other areas is you are in a very, very real way your own boss. Um, you 
do the things that you choose to do. You study the problems you choose to study. Uh, you have an independent intellectual world that is defined by you. Uh, and what that means is that you either succeed or fail by the things that you do. Not everybody likes that particular degree of insecurity, um, but it's very rewarding when it works. It's even rewarding when it doesn't, doesn't work out because um, you have a sense, which is sometimes hard to achieve in uh, modern life, that you are living a life that is a result of choices you've made and not a result of choices that others have made for you. Now, that's, of course, an illusion, right? We all live lives that are partly the result of choices that others make for us. But science and academic life in general gives you an unusual degree of control over the things that you put in your life. And so uh, I think that for those with an independent spirit and those with an independent bent, people who are maybe entrepreneurial but don't want to go out and sell things in a business sense, science is a terrific way to go because you get the opportunity to exercise your brain, you get an opportunity to exercise your ingenuity, you get rewarded for what you do well, and if it doesn't go well, well, then at least you know it didn't go well because of something you did and not because of something somebody else did. Since 1863, the nation's top scientists have been honored with membership in the National Academy of Sciences. Today, there are more than 2,500 in the NAS membership, of whom approximately 200 have won Nobel Prizes. We hope you have enjoyed this episode of Interviews and invite you to join us again for another inspiring conversation.